This is what makes an idea more likely to be successfully competitive in the marketplace for ideas. And notice, nothing in there presupposed that the idea was true. Hello and welcome to Talk of Today, where I chat to experts in science, technology and society about developments in their fields and what they could mean for our future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. Now, in today's episode, I am talking with Dr. Brendan Markey-Towler, who is an economist from the University of Queensland. His work includes writings on the economics of artificial intelligence, inequality in the 21st century, economic growth and development, and he even dabbles in time, uncertainty, and free will. So while he may introduce himself as an economist, I'd call him a professional ponderer. His work has been published in the Economic Record, the Cambridge Journal of Economics, and the Journal of Evolutionary Economics. Brendan and I were introduced towards the end of last year by a mutual friend, and we hit it off immediately, uh, talking our way through economics and politics. And this was at the time of the US election, so things obviously degraded into talk of Trump. It was here that Brendan made me aware of his paper, Competition of Ideas in the Public Sphere, because it inadvertently explains how Trump was just so effective. So when I read the paper, I saw it as outlining the principles behind engineering virality, or how to communicate an idea as effectively as possible. And in all honesty, from now on, I'm going to base the communication of my ideas on the principles he outlines. In this episode, Brendan talks us through his paper, Competition of Ideas in the Public Sphere, and outlines the rationale behind engineering a viral idea and makes it so apparent why we must become soldiers for truth. I had an awesome time chatting to Brendan, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. There are some moments in the recording where things get a tad echoey, but hey, I'm learning. These things happen. Uh, Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Brendan Markitala. So, um, Brendan, um, do you want to uh, just introduce yourself and uh, what you what you what you do in this fine establishment? Maybe where we are, you know, where are we at the moment? Uh, what's your role here, and what would you describe yourself as? Hadn't prepared for that, but okay. <laughs> uh, so we're, we're currently sitting in the School of Economics at the University of Queensland. Uh, I'm a Uh, what's called an industry research fellow and as soon as we work out what that means I'll tell you Uh, but basically it's it uh, it means that uh, despite my tendencies and my proclivities to be a high theorist I try and connect theory with the world the theory is only as good as it actually explains how the world works and my uh, mission such as it were here and also I'm affiliated with the Australian Institute for Business and Economics is to bring theory out of the ivory tower in which we sit almost a literal ivory tower uh, and try and really use it to get insight into how the world works that is useful for people you know, magna est veritas et prevalet is uh, uh, the Latinization of a creed that is inscribed over our very fine Forgan Smith building here at the University of Queensland, which is great is truth and mighty above all things. Power is truth. Truth is power. If you know how the world works, if you have a good theory, 
you can do great things. It is literally powerful. You have the power to uh, to change your world, and that is my role here, somewhat glorified. And that reminds me of a, a quote that I think I read in one of your papers, and it might even be on your door about um, once you. I'm you know I'm paraphrasing, but once you understand how much economics influences our lives it's hard to think of anything but economics what's the yes that's a that's a quote from a, a nobel prize winner um bob lucas who uh i rather disagree with on a number of issues <laughs> but uh he had a great saying about economic development that um uh once you start to think about these problems of how economies grow and develop it's very hard to think of anything else I somewhat disagree with that, you know, as, as I'm fond of saying, I'm an economist to put the Chardonnay on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one thing of what I do, but it's... it's yeah, so, what, how, how would you describe yourself then? So, I, an, an economist by day? Uh, the, my good friend Michael Knox likes to describe it well. We're economists to put the Chardonnay on mm-hmm. the table, um, but we're much more psychological scientists, uh, philosophers... And you've just gotten your doctorate. I've just gotten my doctorate. uh, Well, my it's called a doctor of philosophy. Okay. Um, It's strictly speaking across economics, psychology, and philosophy, and uh, I got that here at this university um, rather than go other places because here I felt the ability to search for truth, which is power. Again, to come back to that idea of that is what that my father is fond of saying. There's nothing so useful as a good theory. And that's what we want to do here is to bring knowledge to the world that is useful. So a lot of your work is centered on a model of economic systems as networks formed out of individuals acting on the basis of their psychology and social position. Uh, Does this contradict um, conventional economics or is it like an adaptation of, you know, um, economics of old? And if so, how? And why is this an important change? There's a great saying by Winston Churchill that uh, if you put uh, 10 economists in the room and ask them a question, you'll get 10 different answers and 11 if Lord Keynes was. So I'm going to give you a classic academic answer, which is yes and no. My my work does and in some ways doesn't contradict um, standard neoclassical economics, quote unquote. So no. No, in the sense that uh, if you take the canonical model of neoclassical economics, Arrow and de Bleu, uh, 1954, uh, it does put forward a psychology after a fashion. It does have a model of individuals is, is after that, a fashion. That we are rational? Is that the... In, rational in a sense. It's a particular variant of rationality. And it, it puts forward a network after a fashion. Um, and that in the sense of where that model came from was a chap, uh, ironically, a, a Swiss socialist. Ironic because his model became used as a justification for free market economics. Uh, Leon Valra. He went to the 19th century physics textbooks of his day and he literally nicked all the equations there. He went through these these engineering textbooks and said, I can give that an economic interpretation, that an economic interpretation, and that an economic interpretation. And from thence came the neoclassical model of psychology, where we rename the energy of a particle moving through space as utility. The space through which the particle moves stops becoming physical space and becomes economic, commodity space. And we have a psychology of you uh, settling at an optimizing equilibrium um, 
in this commodity space, you are maximizing your equilibrium much as a particle optimizes its use of energy. Uh, and that's in a sense, a psychology. In a sense, that leads to the formation of a network, in a sense. Uh, but the network that's generated by a neoclassical economic model for a number of different technical assumptions is what we call a complete field, which is every connection that can be made is made. So it's much like an electromagnetic field. And that's why we have equilibrium is such a dominant concept in neoclassical economics. The equilibrium flows across an electromagnetic field are how we model an economy. So in that sense, there is, we're not contradicting neoclassical economics. There is a psychology in neoclassical economics. There is a network in neoclassical economics, but it's not a particularly interesting one. There's no evolution that can occur. Um, and it's not really a picture of how human beings are. So that yours would be, or this, this model is more behavioral? That's right. That's exactly right. And so, yes, in a sense, our model does contradict uh, neoclassical economics in the way that, uh, that it is, as you describe, a model of networks, uh, evolving networks formed out of individuals acting on the basis of their psychology and social position. We contain the arrow de brew, the neoclassical story, as a special case where we put very, very... Uh, specific assumptions in um, and that incidentally mean that no evolution can occur. If you make every connection that can possibly be made, you can't make any new connections. So it's impossible for an economy to evolve. We step back from that. And so we try and say, right, we're going to um, build up a view of individuals as they are psychological individuals, individuals who have a particular position in society. That idea is not something in neoclassical economics that's trivialized. And imperfect. Well, not necessarily irrational, right? It's not necessarily irrational. Uh, you can be, well, we actually have a much more intuitive definition of rationality in our psychology as you have ratio decidendi, what the judges call and the legal profession call ratio decidendi, reasons for decision. In neoclassical economics, you do something because utility made you do it. Um, in our models, you do something because you have reasons for doing something. That's one of the benefits of our so model. I guess one fact. is more quantifiable, the other is internal and um, you know more ethereal. It's more, I would say, spiritual for lack of a better word, but there's that that extra bit of something that we can't quite put our finger on. Psychological. Psychological. Yes. It's psychological, right? We, we, it's it. In our models, we can actually mathematize and express mathematically thought. Right? It's not something that we, we, we have to be scared of as fuzzy and vague and literary. No, 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 no. These things have structure. Our thoughts have structure to them. We can mathematize that because mathematics is about structure. And when we do, that's where the value of what we do comes to the fore. Um, and you can do all sorts of things with our models that you can't really understand with neoclassical models. So. I already mentioned evolution. We can understand how economies evolve through time, how the networks of interactions which comprise them change, shift, new connections are formed. Old ones are uh, uh, not so much destroyed, but fade into irrelevance. We can understand that. Um, we can understand how, if I change your social position, I can change your behavior. Neoclassical economics is very static and fixed. It, it's very hard to change your behavior um, by anything other than making adjustments to prices. 
we can understand it's a change of social position, which changes the way you think. So we can understand how people change their thinking, how they change their behavior, and we can understand how that affects the economy, how the economy is affected by psychology. And most importantly there, we can understand the very, very deep blockages in the psyche to the formation of certain economic structures. This is something that neoclassical economics has been singularly unable to do um, without really bending over backwards. We can understand why there are areas that you will not go. There are certain things you will not do because your thinking completely bars you from doing that. Right? Uh, particularly profound example is indigenous employment. There is a certain, this is controversial, of course, but there is a certain aspects of Indigenous employment in Australia, uh, which mean employers just will not hire um, certain Indigenous people. And so that is, there are many, many reasons for why that is the case. Uh, and that problem cannot be solved with merely adjusting prices. Our models say, right, we can, we can address this problem, but we have to think about how people think and we have to change how people think. And that's something you can do with our models. We get these understandings of phenomena that we wouldn't otherwise get. And this, I guess, is a good, it uh, leads us into uh, your paper, um, The Competition and Evolution of Ideas in the Public Sphere. It has a, a Latin name, which I will not try and pronounce uh, for fear of embarrassment. Oh, it's merely there to frighten people. Yeah, well. And to make it sound more fancy than it actually well, it is. Works. Well, so Competition and Evolution of Ideas in the Public Sphere, when I read it, um, I basically interpreted it as I interpreted it as a uh, principles or the maths behind engineering virality or engineering you know the virality of uh, engineering a viral idea for the use of you know twenty first century um, uh, terminology. Uh, so you describe your paper as an elaboration and updating of Aristotle's brilliant rhetoric. Can you talk briefly about Aristotle and his treatise? Oh, he's, yeah, absolutely. I could talk about Aristotle. How much tape do you have? We've got, uh, I've got time. I've got time. <laughs> I've got a cup of tea good. here. You know, I'm happy. Very good. Well, Aristotle's a really fun guy. Okay. Um, not something we usually say about him. No, no, you don't normally. He's a, he's a good lad. He's a, he's terrific fun. Um, and the man could write. I mean, the, the stuff that survived through the, the aeons, um, it can seem quite dry, uh, unless you're a total, Aristotle um, fanboy like me, uh, but the ancients really admired his his writing style, um, and, and that comes from his his rhetoric in many ways. He was a Macedonian originally. He wasn't he wasn't what we'd call well ancient Macedonia is now Greece, but he's from Macedonia, and he was tutor to Alexander the Great. Uh, he was the next biggest figure in Plato's Academy after Plato. So that's how big this guy is. Uh, A.N. Whitehead once famously said that uh, the history of Western philosophy is a series of footnotes to Plato. Aristotle is the single most important footnote to Plato in, because in many ways he sets up everything that comes after Plato. Uh, now, the, there's a big distinction to be made, and this helps us understand the nature of Aristotle's rhetoric. Plato is literally an idealist. He talks about ideas in the realm of the, the the realm of ideas and the theory of ideas and the idea of form. And was it he who thought that you, know, you could just sit there and think about the world and solve everything? Exactly. And Aristotle is different. He would um, 
he would actually go out and experiment and dissect and look at the form. Is That's that right? exactly right. Uh, and when I say dissect, I literally mean dissect. Literally dissect. Cut open animals. To There's the a famous uh, painting of um, Alexander bringing um, uh, the animals that he's collected from his conquests to Aristotle for classification. <laughs> imagine, so, imagine explaining that. You've got a you know, bag full of dead animals. It's like, no, no. This is for my teacher, you know. <laughs> he wants to cut them up. It's fine. That's and then, right. and then yeah, the look so, on their faces. Yeah, so you wouldn't get away with it much today. But that, that's Aristotle. Aristotle is the opposite of Plato. He's a realist. Um, he's, he's the scientist to Plato's mathematician. Uh, Justine Gardet likes to say, you know, Plato's the sort of guy you'll see in the, the ancient Greek agora, the, the, the marketplace, debating and discoursing on mathematics. And Aristotle's the guy you'll find down by the river digging in the slime and collecting uh, 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 samples for his studies. Um, and that helps us to understand the nature of the rhetoric. Um, the, the rhetoric, Aristotle's rhetoric is really, really a profound break with Plato. It's, it's easy to underestimate what, what the break was today. You know, he reverses the entire position of philosophy with the rhetoric. It's, it's that big a book. What he's doing um, in, in 2,000 years ago in ancient Greece is outrageous t- as today saying that you have to understand the position of the white supremacist. You have to be able to construct white supremacist arguments in order to beat them. That is what Aristotle is doing with his rhetoric. That's how radical it is. Um, And that comes from what Plato, his rejection in a sense of what Plato is saying. Plato uh, really attacked this group in ancient Athens called the sophists. And the sophists were the people who practiced rhetoric. Rhetoric was studying how to make speeches so that you would convince the, uh, the audience of your idea. Plato rejects this really firmly because Socrates rejected it firmly because what's the point of trying to convince you of an idea if the idea is a bad idea? In fact, um, uh, there's a, there's a, a play by Aristophanes where he, he, he makes fun of Socrates as if Socrates were a sophist, um, where, where he makes the weak argument, quotation, end quote, end quote, stronger by rhetoric, by studying what do I need to say in order to persuade you of an idea. Now, Plato rejects that, and that was the beginning point of philosophy, was we don't want to just persuade you of an idea, we want to persuade you of a good idea, we need to understand what is truth. Now, Aristotle and Plato holds to that. And in fact, he vehemently rejects that you should study rhetoric. Um, and in a way, he's hurt right? because he's hurt because the sophists uh, were the Athens. They, they epitomized the Athens that killed Socrates, his teacher. Uh, the sophists are guns for hire. Right? Um, Plato rejects that. Aristotle, though, says, you know, Plato kind of dummy spits and says, I'm not going there. I'm going to search for truth and screw you if you don't agree with me. Um, I'm not going to try and persuade you of something. Because um, truth is objective. Yes. Truth is the truth. Uh, but Aristotle goes, well, you know, okay. Um, but Socrates was killed. Plato, you didn't have that big effect on Athens. Um, Athens still went on listening to the sophists. There's something to be learned from that. Uh, And he says, look, if we don't learn rhetoric, we lose every time in a straight shootout. 
If we put our arguments up against the sophists, we lose. End of story. Because they have studied what makes an idea persuasive. I feel like um, I'm sure we'll get to this and I know you'll bring it up, but we've experienced this uh, in 2016 and we are experiencing it still. Absolutely. With this idea of post-factual democracy, right? This is, if you want to, if... uh, if we make a somewhat wild analogy, Hillary Clinton is is Plato, mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders is Aristotle, right? Hillary's sort of going, I'm not going there. I'm just going to present you with facts and data and the truth, quote unquote, um, the truth that the Democrats want you to believe anyway. And Bernie's saying, well, no, I'm going to try and speak to you. Um, um, yeah, and that's sort of what Aristotle is saying. You know, if we want truth to prevail, we have to learn to sell it, right? Um, you can be the purist if you want Plato, but you know Socrates is still going to be killed. Athens is still going to do stupid things by falling into the spell of the rhetoric. So if we want truth to prevail, we have to defend it um, because it's subtle. Truth is subtle. You know, truth is, I saw this thing from Aaron Sorkin, you don't have an idea until you can use the words but, if, except, and then. Right. It's, it's truth is subtle, it's complex, it's nuanced, and therefore it is hard to understand because it's subtle. And that means it's hard to grasp and it's fragile as a state of knowledge in society and it must be defended. It doesn't win in a straight shootout. Right? So that's where Aristotle's rhetoric comes from. It's just this brilliant, right, screw it, we have to learn how to sell our arguments. In many ways, it's the first text of marketing. And he just goes through and says, what makes an idea persuasive? How do we sell the truth? How do we make sure that we defend? And in that sense, it's very like later on Machiavelli. It's truth alone isn't enough. We have to be able to defend it. And that's the radicality of that book. And that's why it's absolutely brilliant. (laughs) And you say, so as I said, um, your paper is an elaboration and updating of the rhetoric. So uh, I guess let's... what is your paper? Can, can you talk about uh, um, your ideas and uh, how they uh, basically are principles for how to set the seed of a, a kick-ass viral idea? So I approach this as a sort of a scientist rather than an engineer to start with. The engineering comes from, from the science. Uh, science, quote-unquote, again. Um, but... So what I did, Aristotle talks about this idea of the enthymeme, which is one of those classic, beautiful, um, translatable Greek words, um, which is a sort of series of syllogisms. It's an, an enthymeme. What's a syllogism? A syllogism is, is, a, is a logical truth, A, therefore, B, where all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal, is a syllogism. It's a way of making an argument. An enthymeme is an argument constructed from if A, then B statements. And that's what an idea is. It's an argument, in a sense, that I, uh, and I said, well, look, these things play out in the public sphere. Um, We we argue with each other in the public sphere. We try and compete uh, in the public sphere to have our ideas. And by the public sphere, it's not just limited to out in in the streets. It's, you know, on my front lawn with a couple of friends, right? Uh, absolutely. It's anywhere where two people come together and exchange ideas. Yes. That's the price. The original uh, agora, uh, public sphere is the Agora in, in Greece, which becomes the forum in Rome. It's the public square where we all go to talk with each other. But it's also the back streets, 
right? It's the back streets. It's, it's anywhere that isn't our private uh, lives. That's where the competition and evolution of ideas plays out because the, the, uh, the, the public sphere is an evolutionary system. It's a, it's a, it's a, a space where selection pressures are exerted and the selection pressures, much like in biology, they're exerted on the, on the genes. In the public sphere, selection pressures are exerted on ideas. So what I did was I said, all right, let's release a bunch of these enthymemes, let's release a bunch of these ideas into an evolutionary system where selection pressures are uh, exerted. And what makes an idea or an enthymeme evolutionarily fit in this evolutionary system we call the public sphere, where selection pressures are exerted? What makes an idea likely to be selected by this system? That's what I studied. And that question is equivalent to what makes it likely that you will assent to an idea. This is a beautiful um, phrase by a, a Catholic theologian, uh, Cardinal Newman, who talks about the assent to an idea. I accept an idea as true and incorporate it into my mind. Uh, so that was the question I asked was, let's throw these ideas into a public sphere and ask what makes it more likely or less likely that an idea will be selected, assented to incorporate into the mind what makes an idea fit. That's what this paper does. And how? How do you break this down? What are the components to it? What makes an idea fit in your eyes? So I suppose this is asking, uh, 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 how do we maximize the persuasiveness of an idea? There we go. That's exactly. Right, so, everyone listen up, marketers, advertisers, people who are trying to sell, you know, like, where do you want to go for dinner tonight? This is all, this is all of it. <laughs> we should put up a paywall on this section <laughs> of the interview. It's not a particularly uh, a new idea. There's, there's lots out there. This idea just kind of ties it together. I like to think of an enthymeme or an idea as a sort of, like a sculpture. Um, an idea has shape and structure. We'll talk a little bit later about what exactly that means. It has a shape and it has a structure, much like a sculpture. And the conditions which uh, which which make a, that inform us about what makes an idea fit um, or, or likely to be selected, in a sense, offer us a guide as to uh, to where to chisel on this structure. How do we shape our idea? Literally, how do we shape the form of our idea so as for it to be likely to be accepted? Well, how do we package it up? What's the, how does That's it look? That's right. So, it and we have this, this idea that I, I develop in the paper, which I developed in the course of my psychological research called the made to stick theorem. And the made to stick theorem governs what makes an idea uh, fit for competition in the public sphere by talking about what is the likelihood that you will assent to this idea, incorporate this idea. Because it's necessary for it to be passed on. Absolutely. It has to stick for you to that's spread. Right. Right. And this is, this, is a, this is not something that's a certainty right? because we are conscious individuals. We can exert judgment. And, well, if you, if you don't believe that we have free will, then it's just a one or zero proposition. But uh, the, the, the likelihood that you will accept an idea is the inverse of 
that you're rejected and not incorporated into your mind. But the likelihood that we will accept an idea incorporated into our mental structures is subject to the government of five different factors that I developed. Um, and so I'll run through these. Uh, you know, um, this is where we put up the paywall, but how to engineer virality. What makes an idea fit? There's five conditions for this. The first two are just mathematical facts, which is kind of nice. It's, it's just mathematical facts. It is nice. Um, it is very nice. So the, the, the first one is that an idea is simple. That's it. The more simple an idea is, the more likely it is to be accepted. Now, that's pretty obvious, right? Uh, but it has a definite mathematical meaning. The more relations this idea contains. When you say relations, do you mean? The more connections it makes, the more if A, therefore B. And when you say, oh, okay, so to other ideas or other. A therefore B, this is related to that. The more statements it has to make like that, the less likely it is to be incorporated into the mind. The fewer statements it makes, the more likely it is to be accepted. And so this is why sex sells, right? Because if you, but we don't say nowadays, uh, buy this car because it has good fuel economy it does 4.2 liters to the to to the mile it, it has lovely leather upholstered seats now we don't run through this list of of ideas we don't give you all this set of connections to make we simply say if you buy this car you'll get women simple idea right one connection now that's just a mathematical fact right the the more i uh the more things that have to happen for you to accept an idea the more things that have to happen, the less likely it is to happen. And uh, for those of you listening, if you have any questions about these mathematical facts that we're talking about, just check out the paper uh, that's linked in the show notes because um, I personally didn't really understand it. And we'll talk more about the, the maths behind it. But uh, if you want to go have a look, it's all, it's all there. Very good. Um, the second is also a mathematical fact, which is that the more of an idea that I'm trying to persuade of you that is already in your mind, the more likely I am to get you to accept the idea wholesale. Again, that's the inverse of the mathematical fact we just talked about, right? Uh, the, the, the fewer things that I need to happen, the more likely it is that they will happen. So if I've got a lot of this idea already in your mind, it doesn't take me much to complete the idea. So the more of an idea that is already contained in your mind and the more that I'm just building on it, the more likely you are to accept that idea. So those are just some mathematical facts, right? That's the first two. And they're quite intuitive as well. If you were to really just think about them, you're like, oh, yeah. But it's, but it's nice. It's very nice that there's maths behind it. It's like there's intuition, but then there's maths. That's right. there's, there's Plato and then there's Aristotle. There's thinking about it, then there's actually testing. Exactly. exactly. Um, so there we go. Those are the first two conditions. And that's interestingly and importantly individual non-specific, right? This holds for every single person on the planet. The simpler an idea is, and the more of the idea that's already contained in your mind, the more likely I am to get you to accept this idea. The third is where the psychology starts coming in. And this is where we have empirical realities implying these outcomes. So the third condition is what we call salience, noticeability. This third condition comes from a, a, a unusually instructive tautology. Which, which sorry, is, a tautology? A tautology that, um, oh God, 
been a long time since I've had to explain. It's one of those words that you know what it means, but when you ask to describe it, it's a is, like... A is A. Okay. Sam Barton is Sam Barton. It's a tautology. It's a true statement in and of itself because it says the same thing twice. All right. Um, the tautology that's really interesting and actually very informative about the psyche is that we only notice what is noticeable. Simple as that. Okay. But it's an instructive and now it's an instructive tautology because it plays into this 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 uh, this fact that we know about perception that we only perceive that which is noticeable. All right. So the more that an idea that I'm trying to persuade you of connects really noticeable objects in your psyche, things that have a grab a hold upon your attention, that grab your attention, the more that an idea does this, the more likely it is that I will be able to incorporate it into your mind. Right? This is why we don't say, here are facts and data on why you should buy this car. When we're selling to men anyway, we say, if you buy this car, you will get women, right? because it's a more noticeable thing. It connects much more noticeable factors and objects in our psyche, things that have a powerful grab on our- And it, you just think of advertising and how you just see ads for some companies everywhere and they don't really say anything. It's literally just the brand, but by merely noticing it and by becoming familiar with it, you're more likely to, I guess it's, it's somewhat related, but I guess- I, you know, we are we are more attracted to things that we are familiar with, or we are more likely to trust things that we are familiar with. That will play into more some other conditions, um, but especially where you have that brand associated. This will, this goes into some other um, technical aspects of the psyche, especially where that brand is connected to a particularly powerful visceral factor in your psyche, it's going to be more noticeable uh, and more likely for me to be able to incorporate ideas about that brand into your mind. That's why Coca-Cola is always nowadays advertising with beautiful women coming up out of the sea or beautiful men coming up out of the sea. You know, that this is a power- Fresh. Fresh. Crisp. Crisp, but sex, mm -hmm. right? It is the ultimate grab on our attention. Um, and that's why we use it because the more noticeable an idea is, sex is the most classic mm -hmm. example, right? But it's also- It's like yeah, a biological hack, you know, it's just like a hacks the system, you know, like exactly. we're rational, but then, you know, we were discussing this, uh, Brendan and I were catching up the other day uh, and we were talking about uh, driverless cars and, you know, my I've got one argument against, it was, you know, people are like, oh, I would never let a robot drive my car, blah, 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 blah. And I, say, I said, well, you know, if I'm driving down the street and I've, you know, I've got my, my attention focused and I see, you know, a 10 out of 10, you know, like supermodel running, there's a very solid chance that I'm going to look, even if just for a brief moment. But the computer, no, the computer will look, but it'll look at everything else and it will register her not as, you know, this 10 out of 10 super beautiful um, runner, but as a potential threat to avoid, <laughs> which is even better. Of course. Um, but the beauty of artificial intelligence technology, it could probably in the future in augmented reality find that, that uh, find her number for you. Uh, <laughs> go nuts. Go nuts. Social uh, justice and warriors. And here we go. Down the rabbit hole. Yes, of course. This is a conversation for another time. But you see already that the, these are visceral factors. The mm. fact that we're terrified to even talk about it. These are visceral factors with a grab on our and a hold on our attention. The more an idea connects these the more likely I'm going to be able to incorporate that idea into your mind. Uh, now, the fourth condition 
is very interesting. It comes from an idea uh, that was put forward and proved definitively by Leon Festinger, um, the great psychologist of cognitive dissonance. Now, cognitive dissonance occurs when I tell you something or there are contradictory ideas elicited in your mind and it creates discomfort. Now, the logical conclusion of that is for this fitness of ideas in the public sphere, the more an idea that I'm trying to tell you contradicts ideas that are already in your mindset, the more that it contradicts the mindset that you currently have, and that's important that you currently have, the more the idea I'm trying to persuade you of contradicts your current worldview, the less likely you are to accept it, simply because it's uncomfortable to do so. This is why uh, we... This is why we, uh, this is why we cannot persuade the climate change skeptic to accept the reality of climate change because it just contradicts who they are. This is why we can't persuade a militant atheist that there is some value to the notion of religion because it contradicts ideas that are already held in your mind. Now, that interestingly is an individual specific thing, right? We cannot design an idea necessarily uh, that is going to pers- that is going to uh, be non-dissonant with everyone's worldview that is going to not contradict everyone's worldview right? because we all have different worldviews what appeals to a supporter of the Liberal Party will not support uh, appeal to a supporter of the Labor Party what's sub- what appeals to the hip inner city trendy Melbourneite does not appeal to the labourer. So that's an individual specific point. When you are starting to design ideas with this condition in mind, you have to be thinking, okay, who am I now trying to appeal to? The first three, not so much, although with the idea of salience, yes, there is some individual specific there. But it comes back with a vengeance with this. We've got to now be thinking, who are the idea? Who are we trying to persuade of this idea? And how do they think? Now, this is very, very important in our modern era in this post-factual democracy. Especially when we all have our own, you know, um, self-selected news feeds and all. absolutely absolutely and this correlates with the, with the later idea i talk about about uh, uh entropy but that gets a bit more um technical and advanced but we're, so we won't go there now but you know, the, the, this is so important in our modern era this is why it, you cannot not afford to understand what the white supremacist is saying right? uh be, simply because um you might be a purist and 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 we can raise many, 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 many reasons for why the white supremacist is wrong. But if you can't sell to him, if you don't know him, that's right. That's right. It's got to know who you're selling to. That's right. You you have to be able to make your your opponent's argument better than they can before you can understand how am I going to design an idea so that it is not contradicting your worldview, therefore more likely to be. It's like radical empathy. It's just being empathetic to a not not a fault, but you know you to. I mean, you'd it'd be quite confronting to truly empathise and understand. You know why someone would feel the extreme feelings that you know a jihadist might feel, or you know a white supremacist. Absolutely, yeah, so you'd have to go down some dark paths. You do, um, but it's powerful. 
It's powerful because you can understand how to design your idea so that you can argue with that person. This is the truth uh, of Aristotle's rhetoric. This is the brilliance of Aristotle. And this is in many ways the courage of Aristotle to say you have to understand your enemy. We aren't doing that today. No, and we'll get I mean, to many yeah. examples of this. Uh, and you can list them off on, you, you don't have enough, there aren't enough fingers in the world to list these examples, but you know, that is a critical condition. Um, you ignore it at your peril. If you try and sell an idea that contradicts the individual who you're trying to persuade's worldview, you're simply less likely to persuade them. End of story. So that's the fourth condition. And the final condition is very subtle and it comes out of personal construct psychology, in particular the work of George Kelly, very famous and very brilliant psychologist, which is the idea of our worldviews have cause. We, we, not all ideas in our mind are equal. Some are more central than others. This is why, um, for instance, the death of a family member or a breakup with a dearly beloved woman or man, um, really hurts because it's wrenching the core of your worldview away. I, I am fond of saying to friends when I'm being the agony uncle, um, you know, the pain that you feel when you break up with, with a dearly beloved uh, 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 woman or man is- Or in between. Or in between, yes. yes. 2017 it is akin to having your arm cut off. Why? Because it's so core to our world. All our ideas of the world build up on these core notions of our world. For instance, the fact that we are going to have an arm and we can use it to drink the delicious tea that we are now drinking, to make the wild gesticulations that the people who are listening to this will not be able to see. It is a core of our worldview. You strip that out, that is hugely painful. Um, now, even to change that core. When I say strip that worldview out, that's that's changing the worldview. That I no longer have my arm. My mom is no longer here. My wife is no longer here. This is changing your core, the core of your worldview. And that's an incredibly painful thing. So the more my idea is trying to change the core of your worldview, the more that I am trying to persuade a pro-lifer that it is okay to abort an unborn fetus, the more that I am doing that, the less likely it is that I'm going to be able to get you to accept this. Because it's painful. It's, it's painful to change the core of your worldview, right? Um, and again, that is individual specific. This is why a pro-choice advocate, especially in the modern world, will simply not try and understand the pro-life worldview. Um, because for many, many reasons, right? They, they think that it's a, an abomination that women um, should have their bodies dictated to by men. Therefore, we won't try and understand uh, the, the, the pro-life argument, which is fine. You can do that. But when you come to shaping your ideas, you're leaving- with the, with the hope or with the aim of convincing them that you are, that your idea is superior. You you're leaving your, your argument to chance. Right. You're not designing it so that it's more likely to be able to be accepted by the by the opposition. Right? So again, that's an individual specific thing. We are different people. The pro-lifer has a different core to their personality to a pro-choice. Uh, and so to sum all those five conditions up, simplicity, 
So make it. So n- number one, make your idea. Make your idea simple. Number two, your idea needs to build on ideas existing in the individual psyche. Number three, the idea needs to be connecting noticeable ideas. It needs to be really connecting ideas that grab the individual's attention. It should not contradict. Well, I mean, should not. If it does contradict individuals' worldviews, then it's less likely to be incorporated into the minds of those individuals. And if it's changing the core of those individuals' worldviews, it's much less likely to be incorporated. So I like to summarize that by saying a fit idea is a simple story which builds on the core of an individual's worldview without contradicting their mindset. So it's a yes and rather than a but. Exactly. The worst thing that you ever do when you're arguing with someone is say, no, you're wrong. Right. You are, it's the old idea of, of deflection. You know, when somebody is throwing a punch at you, the Kung Fu master says, don't try and grab it and stop it. Deflect it. Be like, so, be like water. That's right. It's very powerful. Uh, to, it's very powerful to rather than say, no, you are wrong. You say, yes, but... Or you don't say, but even you simply say, yes, but. And you tell a simple story which builds on the core of individuals' worldviews without contradicting their mindset. And that is what makes an idea fit. That's the uh, that's what makes an idea fit in the you know because this is an evolutionary in an evolutionary system. This is what makes an idea more likely to be selected. This is what makes an idea more likely to survive. This is what makes an idea more likely to be successfully competitive in the marketplace for ideas. And notice, nothing in there presupposed that the idea was true. Nothing in those conditions, nothing in the psychology of human beings presupposes a priori that the idea which is fit is true. It's terrifying. Which is, way, terrifying. which is terrifying. Terrifying. Yes. Yeah. Kind of got a little chill when you kind of when you made that statement because that was true, and we're talking about how to make something incredibly persuasive without <laughs> yeah. it needing to be true. And you know, as we're seeing this in the twenty first century uh, with this this new term, you know, post factual uh, democracy. So. Yes, that's right, and that, that that's exa- that's the the bravery of Aristotle is to say. This is why the truth needs to be defended, because the truth is not necessarily fit, right? That saying that we have over the Forgan Smith building uh, here at UQ, greatest truth and mighty above all things, yes, but in a subtly different way, because truth allows us to understand how the world works. It's only as powerful as you use that knowledge of the truth. Uh, and that's Aristotle's courage is to realize part of the truth is to recognize that an idea which is true, in a sense, or is um, a good or just idea or a beautiful or a sublime idea is not necessarily fit for the public sphere. Ideas which are true are typically, in fact, not fit. Because they contradict and they create co- cognitive dissonance, which is... Nothing. We will, as you said, we do, it's something that we do not want. That's right. It's complex. It's subtle. It's nuanced. It uses the words if, but, then, except, because. That does not make a fit idea. A priori. In fact, it quite works the opposite. And that is why Aristotle is so courageous and why it is so important for us to understand the value of rhetoric. Because if you want to defend the truth, 
you have to be able to sell the truth. We need to be soldiers for truth, in a sense. So uh, before we um, we'll, we'll wrap up shortly, but uh, I'd just like to, for you to talk about the, the mathematics behind uh, your model, um, just from a very high level, because I'm not going to be able to understand it. Some of you out there might be able to, but... Uh, you know, I haven't done maths in a while, uh, but I think it's important to, you know, just hammer home why this is a somewhat, uh, well, why it's important, why this this message is an important one to take on board. Why you should accept this, the people <laughs> listening, why this is an idea that you should accept. Uh, Hopefully well, it's not too complex or contradictory. The, 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 um, the, the point of the mathematics is it, it's a different type. When people think mathematics, they think two plus two equals four. Um, but mathematics is more than that. Mathematics in its purest form is simply logic. Um, and mathematics is about shape and structure. If To go back to Plato, um, the inscription above his academy was, let no one enter here who knows no geometry. And um, they were dealing with shapes, not with numbers. Now, when we're talking, that's why we are able to be mathematical about the mind. When we're talking about the mathematics of the mind and where this uh, fitness of an idea comes from, it's not coming from two plus two equals four mathematics. It's coming from the mathematics of shape and form. And are you talk when you refer to the mathematics of the mind, and I'm, I'm just thinking about, uh, you know, uh, it needs to build upon, uh, you know, an idea needs to build upon. Uh, truths rather than completely contradic- contradict them? Is that because these pathways are already wired in our brains and that yes. we want to build upon them rather than completely try and create something from a new, like learning a new language? Absolutely. Something. And that's where all, the, all of this will make uh, a lot of sense when we point out that the mathematics we're using is the mathematics of networks. And is that graph theory? Graph theory, yes. Um, that's the math name for it. Um, the, that, that's, boring name, graph. Yeah, yeah, yeah we, it, it really graph sounds but networks, terribly sound boring. Like networks is exciting. We've all got social networks. That exactly. Um, and, and, and our minds are networks, right? That, that, that was one of the most important realizations I ever had. Um, I shall never forget the day that Peter Earl, my supervisor for my PhD, um, told me this idea, put it on my my horizon. Brendan, ideas, the mind is a network structure. We connect objects of our world together. John Dewey, the famous American psychologist philosopher, um, says, uh, thoughts are the process by which we infer the unseen relations, connections, quote unquote, between the objects of reality. That's Creativity as well. I mean, that's how we, if we were to engineer creativity, we just try and, well, when I say engineer, I mean in computers or when, when we even describe it within ourselves, it's the ability to link two ideas that were seemingly unrelated and bring them together to create something new. Absolutely. That's Arthur Kersler talks exactly about the nature of creativity as forming a connection. And when we're trying to uh, to, to develop minds and, and persuade people of ideas, what we're trying to do is grow the network of their minds. Now, why do we use networks? Because that's what the mind is. The mind is a network structure. And we have maths for it. And And we have maths for it. The brain is a network structure. And we actually do. That's where a lot of machine learning comes from is the mathematization of neural networks. So if we want to understand something, we need to build a picture of it as it is. It's what Wittgenstein taught us, the great philosopher. Analogies are important, but they're secondary. If we want to really understand something, we need a picture of it just as it is. So we need a picture of the mind as a network. When we're trying to persuade individuals of ideas, we're trying to grow that network. And that's where ideas like 
core, centrality, contradictive of elicited relations, all of a sudden makes sense. Structure makes sense. Um, simplicity as number of connections makes sense when we're talking about the mind as a network structure. And the proof in the pudding of why this mathematics is really important is what we can do with it, all the results that we get. And this is one of them. We can understand what makes an idea strong, fit, made to stick, in the words of the Heath brothers, of whom the theorem is named in honour. Uh, and we understand, I said uh, uh, many moons ago now, that uh, we can understand the actual form and structure of an idea, much in the way that we understand the, the, the form and structure of a sculpture. We understand the literal form. We understand what the shape of the network of an idea needs to be in order to be more likely to succeed in the competition of ideas in the public sphere. And that is expressed in the maths in your paper. And it's expressed in the mathematics of the paper. And that's why each of those five conditions are a guide, in a way, uh, to a sculpture of an idea where you chisel. Mm -hmm. How do you shape the idea so that it's going to be more like this? I was thinking, you know, uh, one of the the selective pressures... uh, that one might encounter when, you know, expressing an idea is one's facial expression. You know, I say I, I present an idea to you and if you just, you know, if your face, uh, you know, if, you, if I see it, your disgust come across your face, that's a, that's a pressure saying, oh, maybe don't say that next time. And then over time, I'll morph my idea to, you know, elicit the least amount of disgust and hopefully happiness. Exactly right. That's right. And so that, that, that facial expression is showing the structure of the networks or the content rather of the networks that are being elicited in the mind of your of 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 your interlocutor uh, that ah this particular structure is contradicting some structure in that person's mind if i want to design an idea to be persuasive i need to go the opposite of that and this is what um, if we want to use an example of this to really ram the point home this idea really makes sense. In fact, um, my paper was finished the day before the presidential election, I believe. Uh, and you, you, you predicted Trump's victory. Well, well because, I was, because I work in a university, um, I, I, I wasn't brave enough to say exactly that. But I was thinking and saying to a number of people very quietly because... Because you've just been working on this paper like, oh, wait, he's got a really, really simple message that everyone can get around. Make America great again. Like, see, what's great about that? Like, thinking about your you know your um your paper and your, the principles is it doesn't everyone's idea of what a great america is is different it's personalized and he, that statement is re- reflective in all of them yes, yes. that's it's powerful that's right it, it doesn't contradict people's ideas i uh, i was too i was not brave enough to say that i thought donald trump was going to win uh, outright but observing the debate i could see um The Clinton debate was almost, the Clinton strategy was that of Plato. It was almost singularly ill-suited to success. Trump was saying, ticked off all five of those conditions with his message. Now, social justice warriors go nuts, but that is the reality. His his idea was made, it was fit in the public sphere. What did Hillary say? Um, uh, Well... Instead of engaging with Trump and his supporters, the left, for lack of a better term, you know, just I don't want to, sorry to throw everyone in together, but they just kind of ignored 
them and said, you know, you guys are idiots. You're, you're all stupid. And that is not how you convince someone of your idea. In fact, it convinced them more. They did Donald Trump's work for him, right? What, what that, that whole debate started out with Donald Trump saying very, very simple ideas and connecting very potent uh, uh, objects in individual psyches. You've lost your job and you're struggling to pay for your kids' uh, education. Uh, well, worse than that, you're struggling to put food on the table, let alone pay for your kids to go to college. It's very visual. And I, very I, I, visual. I heard this dis- um, dis- discussed in a podcast. Um, I can't remember. He, he was, this guy's actually a, um, a hypnotist and he was, he's, um, I think his name's, uh, yeah, um, he wrote Dilbert the Dilbert comics, Scott Scott Adams, that's right. So he was a hypnotist and he said, because Trump is so visual, like people don't really, we don't listen to too well. Like only when we really try do we really listen. But um, when it comes to, you know, uh, ideas and and visualizing these things, anything that you visualize is a lot more, uh, it hits home. That's right. And he's very visual. He's like, yep, the wall just got 10 feet higher. We know what that's going to look like. That's right. And, you know, all he, he's very he's very visual and um, well that's why uh, uh, that's why I, I've, I've been trying to persuade this um, I've been trying to persuade my friends who are I refuse to call them liberals I call them progressives um, of this that it's a conversation for another that's time that's a whole other <laughs> conversation but this idea that a fact never happened to anybody let me rephrase that a statistic never happened to anybody. It doesn't matter. The, the one I used was uh, the, the one that is, is frustrating to me is people uh, in the current debate about the travel ban, 0.000003% chance. That is your chance of being killed by a, a terrorist on American soil. I know exactly what a Trump supporter would say to that. First of all, that non-zero level of risk is acceptable to you. That number has no powerful uh, exertion over the idea. September 11 did. September 11 happened to yeah. people. And that's that's a, but what about September 11? And that's a completely reasonable. Exactly. Re- yeah. It is, it is an event that happened to somebody. And this is what Trump did. He had simple ideas to say, this thing that's happening to you, you're not able to afford fees. You're seeing, uh, you, you, you're, you're not able to put food on the table. You're not able to get ahead. Uh, you are struggling to find work. It's because of the Chinese and the Mexicans who are very, very present in the American mindset at the moment. Three conditions right there already. Uh, the first three conditions of, of our mathematics already there, fit idea. Then he starts building and he doesn't contradict them. He says, this is not because you are lazy. It's not because you're uneducated. It's because of these people. And it builds on a core malaise that these people have already uh, about foreigners. Very, very fit idea. It's a simple, powerful story that builds on the core of existing ideas and does not contradict them. What does Hillary Clinton come back with? These people are deplorables. Congratulations, you've just made Donald Trump's case for them, for him because you are now actually confirmed. You're, you're not just contradicting worldviews in their minds. Uh, you're not just trying to propose an idea to them which contradicts their worldview. You're actually proposing an idea to them which is consonant with their worldview, which is that you're an out-of-touch elite which does not understand uh, the realities that a poor person is, is facing 
and Donald Trump is the only person who is. Worse, 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 Hillary, uh, Hillary Clinton and her supporters start quoting facts. Now we're off to the races because that is a singularly ill-suited... Uh, well, there's, the, the science shows that if you quote facts, you're just going to drive your opponent further into their that's into right. position. That's, that's right. right. It's not a, an attention-grabbing idea. Now... I'm not just complaining. I have a solution for the if for, for, if you want to if you want to be countering this, you should be doing what the Prime Ministers of Australia did back in the 1970s. Or just to, or you just don't conspire against Bernie Sanders in the <laughs> yes, because Bernie he was a man of the people and he absolutely. was convincing. And Bernie was. I don't want to say the, the the left version of Donald Trump, but he is. Well, he, well the thing in is, he was he's authentic. You know, Hillary Clinton. She is or was in, in the race was the establishment incarnate. She was cold and measured and yes. calculated. Bernie was fired up. Mm. He was well, fired up. In, in all, uh, to, 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 to head off the inevitable, so is Elizabeth Warren, mm. right? Elizabeth Warren is an, is an excellent example of this as well. Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders both are able to tell simple stories connecting powerful ideas that build on core ideas already in the minds of individuals and do not contradict their worldview. Now, this is what the Australian Prime Ministers did in the 70s when we allowed, for the first time, we ended the white Australia policy and we allowed, in particular, the Vietnamese into Australia. Now, horrendously racist things were said about that at the time. And what did the Prime Ministers do? They did not come out and say, you are racist, bigoted, or immoral, to use the words of Alexander Downer. They came out and told a positive story about what this nation could be. They told a story about a strong Australia, using every brick to build a nation. That's my personal view, but that's my personal uh, uh, line, but... This is the story they were telling. The <laughs> they were telling a positive story about a strong Australia, Australia that was advancing forward and taking control of its destiny, an Australia that was saying, come to our shores, we will work hard and we will create a better country in the future. That is an immensely positive story. It's a simple story that connects very visceral ideas. Australians are patriots uh, that build on the core of what we are. We're a country that strives for, for great things, despite our reputation for being very relaxed. We are a country that strives for great things, uh, to do great things. And if you don't believe me, look at the Anzac myth or the Kokoda track. Um, and it did not contradict worldviews. It said, this is going to make us stronger. It's not going to, it, it, it's not saying you have to accept this idea because I'm smarter than you and you are racist and you are bad. It's not doing that. That is the solution. If you want an idea to succeed, if you want truth to succeed, if we want truth to prevail in this world, we need to be soldiers of truth. It's not enough simply to find the truth. It must be fought for. It must be sold. And that is hard. Yakka. It's hard yakka to do this. It's hard yakka to understand. Yakka for... That's, a, that's Australian for word. Uh, that's Australian for work. Uh, it's hard yakka, hard work to understand your opponent. It's hard work to be able to make your opponent's argument better than they... It's hard work to talk to them and engage with people from the other side. Absolutely. For uh, There's this... Um, uh, 
website that basically allows you to chat to people on opposite sides of the political spectrum. So it uses, you know, the internet to bring people together and in a somewhat anonymous way so that you don't really have to see them face to face. You can just talk to them uh, online, which is, which is good. It removes barriers. I mean, you do want to see these, uh, these facial expressions. You do, um, it, and 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 you need to study uh, people. It, it's it's empathy. It's it's actually quite the opposite of being Machiavellian. It's being empathetic. Uh, I realise the controversy of saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway because it's a noticeable idea. You need to be able to empathise with a white supremacist because you need to be able to make their argument better than they can, so that you can make your argument better than they can. You need to be able to empathise with, if you are pro-choice, you need to be able to empathise with the pro-life in order to be able to understand them and in order to be able to shape your ideas better so that truth will prevail. It is not enough to simply say that it is wrong to be racist. That is true. In my opinion, it is wrong to be racist. It's wrong to treat people differently on the basis of their pigmented skin. But that idea is like putting that idea out into the public sphere is like leaving a baby alone on a cold moor. You have to defend it. You have to defend your idea. And defending your idea is knowing your enemy and being able to sculpt and design an idea so that it is fit, that it will be able to compete in the public sphere and the evolution and competition of ideas. There we go. Well, I think we'll end, we'll end there. Very good. Thank, Thank you very, very much. much. Metaphorical handshake. Oh, and um, actually, just a few questions. If people want to find out more about uh, your work or if they're more you know, interested in uh, behavioral economics or uh, where can people go? So a few questions. Where can people go to find out about you and your work? Where, what's the best place? They the the, the one stop shop really at this stage. Uh, I'm very old. And you're now on Twitter. I am now, now you're on, on Twitter. Twitter. So, at Doctor Marky Taylor. No, no, that's not right. It's at B underscore Marky Taylor with no hyphen. And this will be put in the show notes with all of uh, your links to um, which you can. The best uh, place to stop by the one stop shop at this stage is my faculty profile at okay. the UQ School of Economics. Uh, Doctor Brendan Marky Taylor. It has links to my SSRN where I put all my research. Uh, prior to the hard slog of getting it published. Uh, my ResearchGate profile, my Google Scholar profile, my Twitter profile, and my conversation um, profile. So, Brendan, are there any books uh, that you'd like to recommend to the people listening out there, uh, perhaps for people who want to learn more about behavioral economics or economics in general, or are there just any books that you've read in your time that you swear by? I will give you the name of a person who I swear by, um, one of the the best behavioural economists on the planet. Um, my old supervisor at University College London, Michelle Baddeley, um, just one of the most brilliant people you'll ever meet. If She has a, a very short introduction to behavioural economics uh, out with Oxford University Press. That's an excellent book. I'd strongly recommend anything by my uh, by my supervisor, my other supervisor, Peter Earle, in particular, um, his book Lifestyle Economics, which is a rip roaring read <laughs> um, and, and full of many examples and, and very few. Uh, I think there's one equation in the entire book, and it's a really, really wonderful introduction to the thinking 
behind our mathematics and our models. Uh, what would uh, what else? Anything less academic that less academic. Uh, I, I suppose Aristotle's Harry Potter. rhetoric. <laughs> Aristotle's rhetoric. Um, it's inherently readable if you get a good translation. And as I say in my paper, if you want to understand the rhetoric, uh, if you want to understand how to be able to argue, you must start with the master. And Aristotle is the master. Uh, you have to start with him and, and work up. Um, Alrighty. Yeah. Yes. Uh, watch this space because I am trying to get my own books published, at which point you can... Uh, and one on uh, generalism, creative generalism, which is we will discuss That's at another time. But <laughs> I would describe this podcast as a podcast for generalists because I want to talk about a whole bunch of random shit and use that to keep an up-to-date worldview. So, Very much so. The world needs more polymaths. There we go. And you described that in another paper of yours, which, anyway, I'm just going to stop there. <laughs> more discussions to come with Dr. Brendan Marky Taylor. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the episode. All of the things we discussed will be linked on the show notes, which can be found at talkoftoday.com slash podcast. Like I said at the end of the episode, this is a podcast for generalists. Uh, throughout my life, I was trying to figure out what I really wanted to do. You know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I bounced between everything uh, from an astronaut to neuroscientist to physicist. And um, I realized um, that I didn't really have to do that. What I could do is just seek out people who are working in or working on things that I'm interested in and then talk to them about what they're doing and just get the good bits. So that's what this is. This is a, a way for me to keep uh, an up-to-date worldview and to just talk to cool people about really interesting stuff. And it's all about what's going on in the world and what it could mean for the future. There is definitely a future well, this podcast is future-oriented because I'm very, I'm just passionate about where we are going as a species, and I invite you to join me on this on this journey of exploration. So, if you want to keep up to date with uh, the content and to see other cool stuff that we have in the pipeline, uh, please head to the website talkoftoday.com and sign up for the email service. And don't worry, I'm too lazy to spam. And check out our Facebook page as well. Um, so. I think the Facebook page is Talk of Today Official. Thanks and cheerio.